I want to define meditation as the act of questioning the relationship to thought, body, and world. Now, if we're questioning the relationship to thought, then that cannot be done naively with thought, right? So the questioning is already, must be a different kind of questioning than the usual ways in which we ask questions. Because we usually ask questions using thought. I want us to question the relationship to thought. Okay, this creates a much more radical paradigm shift. And it's a very important one, which is the key to reaching a level of understanding and realization of the real that transcends the level of thought, which is, as I'm sure we have all discovered, the hard way filled with illusion. So we're going to need to understand the relationship to thought, what thought is. What is the relationship of thought to reality? And when there are thoughts passing through the mind, quote unquote, mind simply being that space in which words arise, thoughts are generally in, in the form of signifiers, which will be words or images or mathematical formulae, but they are for the most part in words, right? Uh, the question is, are, are thoughts that occur in the mind necessarily one's own thoughts? Because there is a naive ascription to any thought that appears in the mind that, ah, I'm thinking this. But even that is a thought, isn't it? And so the relationship to the self that is observing thoughts and the self that appears as its own representation in thought, whether as the word yo or I or ich or whatever language one has been uh, taught to uh, think in, or in a self-image that one may have of one's body as if the body were the self. If this appears in the mind, it, does that representation correspond to the real self that is perceiving it? You see, if it doesn't, then that will create a gap between oneself and reality. And that gap, according to the great sages who have studied this, is what is responsible for our suffering. So we want to understand questioning, meaning inquiry. Uh, Sri Ramana uses the term Atma Vichara, inquire into who am I separate from the thoughts, including the thought I. And therefore, what is the relationship also to the body because the thought I is generally linked with or even identified with the body image. And therefore, to question whether I refers to an organismic entity or does I refer to a consciousness that happens to perceive through the senses of an organism. And therefore, what is perceived? Is it a world or is the world a concept 
that is produced by thought that creates a grid of meanings over what would otherwise be simply, uh, I wouldn't even say raw experience, information, let's say. But that information has to be interpreted. And does our mind accurately interpret the data of the senses, let's say, as well as data of intuitive sources that don't come from sensory, but from, we'll say, extrasensory sources? And uh, is the consciousness, the awareness, able to receive thoughts from different levels of consciousness than the one that pertains to the I that is identified with the body. Okay, so these are the kinds of questions that meditation will not only answer, but uh, will uh, enable us to see reality in an entirely different way, from a different paradigm, if we are open to doing the experiment of questioning the relationship of self to thought. Okay? We assume if there are thoughts in the mind that they're my thoughts. That's the, the almost reflex tendencies because most thoughts will contain implicitly or explicitly an I. I want this, I hate that, I wish this guy were making more sense now, I don't know what he's talking about, or uh, I'm so glad to hear somebody addressing this, or whatever it is. But it, does the I that is contained in the statement of that thought, is that really your own thought? Or is that a thought that is produced by itself? Is that a thought that you have control over? Do you create your own thoughts? Or do you simply witness thoughts and have no control over them, even though the thoughts may tell you, oh yeah, I'm controlling this thought. It's very easy to, uh, to uh, experiment with that and come to a conclusion. Here's what I'd like you all to do for the next three minutes. Stop thinking. Okay, that's it. I'm going to time it. <laughs> Open your eyes, close your eyes, whatever you want, but stop the production of thoughts. Okay?
Okay, Om Shanti, I'll be merciful. It was actually only two minutes. <laughs> How many of you honestly stopped the production of all thoughts for those two minutes? <laughs> you want to be sure? Zero. Okay. If you can't control the production of thoughts, are they your thoughts? Can you really claim to be the one who is creating your thoughts if you can't stop it? I think if you're honest, you have to say, no, the thoughts are actually creating me. Because the thoughts are producing your attitudes your reactions, your feelings, your sense of who you are. The thoughts are producing you, not you producing the thoughts. You at an ego level, right? You as identified with thoughts are constantly being reproduced by the thoughts themselves. This is called hypnosis, okay? You, what the ego is, is a state of hypnosis. It's a hypnotic trance. But can we actually call it self-hypnosis? I don't think so. You're being hypnotized, but you're being hypnotized by a process created by an external other or set of others that has been internalized and is now experienced or imperienced is how we would use that, uh, understand that because it's coming from within, not from sense data. There is an imperience of ideas that you think are yours because they happen to be arising in the mind rather than from outside, as right now you're getting thoughts from outside. But in some cases, when you happen to agree with the thought you're getting from outside, you may also think, well, that's my thought. He's just thinking my thought, right? Okay. This is very important because what I want to, uh, to posit is this. The only way you got a sense of having a separate eye is because there is no such thing as a separate eye. Okay, in other words, somebody else, when you were very little, used the word I or yo or whatever the language was that was the mother tongue. Uh, whatever that language was, the other person used it, probably your mother, and, uh, and then you used it. They call the word I, or any of these uh, uh, pronouns, me, my, mine, etc., as shifters. The I is a shifter. In other words, anybody can use it. It's a common uh, term, and, but anybody who uses it is making a certain statement about a kind of authority over their mind that isn't real. So the only reason you can, you can take in the idea of having a separate egoic identity is that you got it from somebody else and imitated it. Okay, that's what we do. We imitate, like monkeys do. We learn by imitation. And we think we see somebody else having an ego, and I, I want this, I am that, I have free will. And we take that in, and suddenly we're thinking, I have free will, I am this, I... And uh, we are now on our way into massive delusion. Right? That's called being normal. It's a state of massive delusion because you have taken in other people's thoughts, They've been internalized, they become tapes that repeat, and you assume they're your thoughts. 
And those thoughts, not only do they get taken in at a very early age, in fact, some get taken in in the intrauterine period, before you're actually born, you're getting your mother's unconscious thoughts as well as her conscious thoughts and her affects if she is uh, anxious about her pregnancy or wishes she had a, a boy and it turns out you're going to be a girl or vice versa or whatever the case may be, whatever the permutations of her attitudes and her desires and fantasies about who you're going to be for her, uh, that will become your own internal narrative. But you won't remember that you got it from outside. You'll just think, oh, that's just the way it is, you know. I should have been aborted. My mother didn't really want to be pregnant. Okay, I, I don't belong here. And you may go around having those thoughts, even though they were not your thoughts, they were implanted. And maybe your mother changed her mind, but those thoughts went in at an early moment in pregnancy and had an impact. And then even if she said, no, actually, I'm happy to have a baby, it doesn't matter. Those thoughts got put in there. And so they create ongoing traumatic relationship to yourself. Because the thoughts are thinking themselves in your mind and they produce effects in your body. And they produce effects, obviously, in your life, including depression, anxiety, etc., etc., depending on the nature of the thoughts. But you get a whole bunch of those thoughts, and that includes not just your mother's thoughts, but the thoughts that are, are being had in, in conversations between mother and father and others who are involved in the pregnancy and the welfare, etc., of, of this being that you are in process of becoming. And, uh, and if they're fighting or if they're splitting up or if they're having other kinds of relationships that are create a sense of insecurity in the mother, uh, you're going to be uh, suffering from that insecurity without knowing its source, because you don't remember consciously, but it has effects. The same thing then when you're in the birth, the birth situation will have huge effects depending on the nature of the birth, if it's natural, if it's a C-section, if it's... Uh, the mother is awake during it or she's anesthetized and there's no bonding with the mother. All of these things are going to produce narratives within the subconscious mind that will continue. They don't stop, even though they will be repressed and there will be levels and layers of sediments of other thoughts on top of them, but they're always having an impact. And so we go around with our minds constantly erupting with thoughts and feelings that we are not creating, but that are creating the sense of who we are, that have no relationship to the reality of who we are or what we are, but that will create, as long as we believe our thoughts or pretend to believe them, and here I want to add, I think we're pretending to believe them, because we know our parents want us to believe them and we become loyal to their desire to get approval. So we try to match up what we think is their fantasy for us with what is our own fantasies about us. So there's a pretense, but the pretense gets forgotten that it's pretense and then it becomes a belief uh, and then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then that becomes your life script. Okay. 
Meditation is the act of questioning that life script, of realizing it's fake, it ain't you, and, and the realization that those thoughts that are appearing in the mind were conditionings from long ago in the past that simply caused the past situations to repeat in new additions, uh, new inflections, but similar kinds of themes that go over and over again, similar kinds of projections onto people now that you uh, might have experienced with people in the past, and uh, the same sorts of scenarios will unfold in one's life again and again. And this is what Freud called the repetition compulsion. But it's, it's not a compulsion that you have, it's a repetition that the thoughts are doing and going through. And so you are compelled to uh, effect the play that, that this script is uh, telling you to enact simply by the fact that you believe you are the character that these words in the script are telling you that you are. But what if you're not? Okay. So by questioning the relationship of who you really are to the thoughts and what they're telling you you are and what you want and what you hate and what you are seeking and what you're uh, running away from, etc., those kinds of relationships uh, that the script creates to others, to the world, to your own body. I hate my body. I love my body. I hate other people. I love them. I, I don't know if I'm male or female or if I want to be with a male or female. All of these kinds of questions and doubts are created by narratives that become conflicted because you may get one narrative from your mother and another narrative from your father and another narrative later from siblings and another from your uncle and another from the system that you enter in school, and et cetera, et cetera. And so what happens is consciousness of the ego that starts out relatively simple and, and manageable gets fragmented. And these ego fragments then because they are in conflict with one another, will often be dissociated. Because if you feel too much uh, tension of self-contradictory things, oh, I want this, no, I want that, you feel crucified and crazy. So usually what happens is you dissociate one or more of these fragments, and you live in, in, in a particular fragment, but then it gets bumped out of possession of the brain, and another one takes over, and you find yourself doing something that is actually contradictory to what you said you wanted an hour earlier. And uh, so people's lives become incoherent, okay? because there is more than one narrative, but there's no central intelligence agency, not, nothing related to anything a government would produce, but the, the same kind of incompetent self-government uh, in the individual ego, that is even worse, writ large out there, uh, produces a, a lack of intelligence. There's no actual agency that can integrate and say, well, wait a minute, what do I really want? And, and sort out these different fragments and decide, well, who am I really? Well, really, you're none of them. But there is no agency that has been authorized to recognize that you are none of them. Okay? So that's where meditation comes in because it gives you uh, a platform from which and an authority over your consciousness uh, from which you can uh, 
selectively change the script according to a much uh, greater uh, level of refinement of consciousness than you have as an adult, hopefully, than you had as a child, with far more uh, capacity to decide what you really do want to do with your life and who you are and uh, what is the meaning of it all. But where is that going to come from? It's not going to come from the tapes that are already written in the ego mind. It's going to come only from the transcendence of that repetitive uh, set of narratives. And so meditation is the act of questioning them and then uh, asking non-verbally, who am I beyond that, transcending the, the level of representation in thought and entering into the real self and from there, there will be a knowing. One's own heart knows what the thoughts cannot know. And uh, a different kind of relationship to reality emerges that isn't based on the ego's, uh, let's say, dualistic frame of reference, which is always divided into desire and fear. Okay? because the ego always wants to please someone else because as a baby you have to get the approval of the parents in order to survive, you need them. Uh, you don't as an adult, but you may still think you need other people's approval. Uh, and you fear their disapproval or you fear their control of you or their abandonment of you or whatever. And so there becomes a, a sense of paranoia that is endemic to every ego a sense of paranoia that, oh, things could go wrong if I you know, go beyond uh, the, the norm of how I'm supposed to think and act and, uh, and feel, right? So, and so the paranoia, because the ego never really understood what is, what is its parents' uh, real feeling toward me. Did they want me? Didn't they? How did they want me? And I didn't want to be the way I thought they wanted them. Do they hate me? Do they love me really? What is love? Is it real? They, why did they yell at me? Why did they abandon me? Why did they, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a questioning, a doubting, not of your own mind, but your mind is always doubting the other and doubting the ability to trust the other and doubting the ability to trust oneself. And so that paranoia, because it's endemic to the ego, means that you're never in peace. Because there's always fear. Paranoia means, okay, I've got to make sure I'm in control, you see. But are you in control? You can't even control your own thoughts. We just discovered that, right? So are you in control of other people, of situations? of life, or are you living in a world that's totally out of control and totally blooming psychotic, right? I mean, most people today recognize that we're in a world that's being run by people with psychotic egos and, uh, and with nuclear weapons to go with them, you know, and, and all the other ways in which the the world is in a precarious state because the ego mind's paranoia is producing war, not peace, and, and is producing incoherent, inconsistent 
policies and ways of being and demands of others. And it's all based on, on the desire for power and the use of that power then to get satisfaction on a sensory level for the body, whether it's sexual or it's some other a way of feeling good at a bodily level and to calm one's sense of insecurity. These are the three basic uh, concerns that are, uh, uh, let's say, um, uh, summarized in the lower three chakras of our Kundalini map, right? You want power to control the situation, to be able to use that power to gain uh, sensory gratifications, or to use sensory gratification of the other to gain power over them through seduction. It goes both ways. And uh, through both of those to get a sense of security, right? to assuage the anxiety and uh, the sense of, uh, of terror, of abandonment, and of uh, uh, lack of essence, because you want the other to project onto you that you are it, you have essence, you are what they want, therefore you're real, you see. And so this is what love affairs are about at the level of the ego, right? But they never last because they are indeed based on fantasies and projections and not on the real self that remains unknown. How many people can relate to all of this so far? Yeah, okay, we have some honest people here. This is good. All right. So this is the psychological state that most egos find themselves in. Not everybody raised their hand, so maybe not everyone is in this trap. Uh, but you probably know someone who is if you're not in it. And most people who are honest will, will admit that they're not entirely out of it yet. So uh, the, the idea of meditation is that it is the main way that we escape from suffering. You know, if we go back to Buddha's four Aryan truths, the first one is the truth of dukkha or suffering. Everybody is suffering, okay? No exceptions. As long as you think you are a body and as long as you think that your thoughts are you, there is suffering because you're not yet in touch with the real. And that suffering is, of course, uh, uh, augmented by what the Buddha called Trishna, which is craving or thirst. What do you crave? You crave the fulfillment of the sense of lack of being that the ego has because it's not real, because those thoughts are not based on any reality. And so you know you're playing a make-believe as-if kind of game with reality. You're playing it within a script. And even though you might pretend you believe it, you don't really. And you don't believe anybody else's script. So you're in doubt about uh, even whether you're sane or mad. And in fact, if you're not doubting your sanity, you're definitely not sane. Okay? Because uh, there is need for that kind of doubt in order to be able to grow to a higher level of sanity. Well, so in meditation, we become the observer of the thoughts and the observer of the body and the observer of the world without identifying. 
And if we can reach ground zero of consciousness, that is the pure center of presence, that doesn't need to think about anything, and if we can remain in that center long enough, there will be a shift like a, from an optical illusion of believing that you are in your body and in your mind to realizing that no, the body and in fact the whole world and those thoughts are within consciousness. And that what you are is consciousness. Therefore, the consciousness, the pure awareness, transcends the world. It transcends the movement in space-time of forms. It transcends and does not change. And so in the same way that even though when you were a, a little baby, you were having maybe different thoughts, but you were, you were thinking, and now as an adult, there are still similar kinds of thoughts, maybe at a more sophisticated level, but the thoughts have changed and your life situation has changed. But has your awareness changed? If you believe you are the same person now that you were when you were a child, then what is it that has remained constant? It's, it's not your body, because all the cells of your body back then have died and have been replaced, and, and the body is much larger, etc. And your thoughts have changed, uh, even though they may repeat themes, they're different, right? And your relationships are different. Everything is different, except the awareness, the awareness remains constant and unchanging, regardless of the changes that happen mentally or physically, there is that core within you that never changes. So it's that that we want to return to, the unchanging presence, which feels like it is the source of the I. It's the source. It is not the thought that comes from the source or from the unconscious mind, but it is that awareness that in, in an unchanging way perceives whatever arises. If you begin to center yourself in pure awareness, you will discover that that awareness doesn't change even if you are in altered states of consciousness. And those can be altered states produced by chemicals or they can be altered states produced by sleep, by being in a dream, by being uh, in uh, a coma, by being in any kind of an altered state than the, what we would say would be normal waking reality. But there's an awareness that does not change. You can take a massive dose in ayahuasca and the same awareness will be there. It might be saying, oh God, why did I do this? But it's still the same awareness that is operating. Or it might say, oh my God, I'm so glad. Here I'm, I'm, I'm realizing you know, infinity and, and the Godhead right here. But who's realizing it? It's still the changeless awareness that is now realizing other levels, other vibrational frequencies on the spectrum of consciousness. But that entire spectrum is perceived by a single unchanging awareness. It might perceive a world of human beings and nature and, and the forms that we take for granted in ordinary states, or it might perceive a world that's just made up of geometrical patterns 
or, or a world that's, that's made up of incredible, fantastic beings from other dimensions. It could be in any of those kinds of, of bardo states, as the Tibetan Buddhists call them, but it's still the same uh, core awareness that's moving through these different kinds of experiences and imperiences. All right? So if we can locate that core unchanging presence, that becomes the portal to having real mastery over the nature of the world that we are passing through. Because it turns out that not only do the, the thoughts come by themselves, but they come by themselves only because we believe in them, right? When we stop believing that those thoughts are my thoughts, we discover that they stop coming. Then you can actually be in silence if you stop believing that you are the producer of the thoughts. The same way if you stop believing that you are in the world, but if you recognize that the world is in you and it's your dream, you have power to alter the dream power that you don't have if you believe you're a victim of a world that is uh, overpowers you and that you were born into against your will and, and uh, you are simply an extra in some planetary drama that, uh, that you don't count in. If you have those kinds of belief systems, you're going to have a very different uh, feeling state and control, actual control, not thought control over the kind of world that emerges. And if you get out of the state of paranoia that the ego is in, and into a state of metanoia, where instead of fear and desire, there is love, that in itself will produce a different kind of world, a different kind of reality. A reality based on love rather than on fear and desire uh, will produce different kinds of events different kinds of relationships, different kinds of destinies than the destiny of an ego who is uh, in a state of fear and running away and trying to grasp something in order to feel good, etc. So the, the nature of our psychology and therefore the nature of our world is dependent on the nature of the thoughts and affects and that in turn is dependent on the nature of the real self and its vibrational frequency that emanates from ground zero, from its center, uh, to produce uh, thoughts of a different kind and perceptions of a different kind. So you can overpower and you can reprogram the operating system of the ego that was put in in childhood simply by coming to a more coherent level of consciousness that is not dependent on the past and that comes from the source that has the authority to eliminate those illegitimate and uh, distorted belief systems that the mind has been stuck in. Does this make sense? Some people think it makes sense. Okay, that's good. The only way, I would say, to get out of these uh, predicaments created by thoughts that are not yours, but that are negative, let's say, or produce negative results, 
including symptoms in the body of suffering, because when it overflows the mind, when the mind can't contain or bear unbearable kinds of traumatic thoughts, it turns them into physical sickness, into addictions, into uh, bad karma. It turns them into something that creates bodily suffering because it actually prefers the body to suffer than the mind to suffer. So we want to use meditation in order to eliminate the suffering of the body that we might have a belief is based on you know, some uh, genetics or chemistry or a bodily problem. That's what the medical system will try to convince you of. But in fact, nearly every physical symptom is a psychosomatic symptom. And if we can change the psychic component of it, then the somatic component is often uh, very easy to, uh, to change and to eliminate. But if we, uh, if we are either needing the symptom for subconscious reasons to be a, a place where we can dump our suffering because we haven't learned to dissolve it, then we may require uh, physical suffering in order to uh, distance ourselves from mental suffering. And then there are other people who do it by making others suffer, you know? And uh, that's an even worse way of trying to uh, distance yourself from suffering. But there are people who do that through cruelty to others and demonizing of others, negative projections on others. So any, uh, anyone who is, is projecting negatively on others uh, has to, to begin to uh, come to terms with that projection as a way of dealing with their negative feelings about themselves that they can't handle. And, uh, and that produces uh, healing of one's life. So meditation will bring about healing of all of these levels of your, uh, your world, your body, your mind, and your reality, but only if you are willing to honestly confront uh, those uh, distorted thought patterns and change them. And, uh, and become in accord with the real that is love, not hate and not desire and not fear. So meditation will bring you to that naturally, not as a result of some fabrication of a belief system. I'm not uh, ab advocating that you create uh, uh, imaginary forms of, uh, of a different self but that you stop all the imaginary forms that you believe in now from, uh, from being entertained, and then you will see that the real will emerge by itself. And there will be no doubt of its reality. And the living of life as an as-if personality will come to an end. So, all we have to do then is to observe the thoughts without identification. It comes down to that. Meditation is nothing other than that.
And if we can observe it without identifying with it, it will not have an impact on us. It won't create an affect, it won't create uh, a, a train of thoughts that are based on it. If we don't uh, affirm the initial negative thought, let's say based on shame or guilt or, or depression or some other uh, negative affect, if we don't believe that, then the whole narrative that would cascade from that we can also then be free of and extinguish the repetition of those narratives from occurring again and again and then we are find that we are actually free of the fears and the desires that the thoughts are trying to uh, hypnotize us into believing. So we're, we're, meditation is a form of uh, awakening from hypnosis. And until you know that you are in a state of self-hypnosis or internalized other hypnosis, you will not be able to awaken from it. And therefore, the shift from the belief that you are your thoughts to the realization that you are not is the key movement that you must make in meditation. Okay? The real self does not think. It doesn't need to think because it already knows everything. The real self doesn't use words to think. It doesn't have to and it sees beyond the limitations of any belief system. The real self is presence. Presence without thought. And so if you can stay long enough in the state of presence without thinking, not by uh, forcing the thoughts to stop, but without having any intention at all toward the thoughts and turning the mind toward the source, you will find if you're curious enough about who am I when I am not identifying with thought, that that itself will lead to an ingress of power from the source, from ground zero, that will enable the thoughts to be silenced. They will be silenced from the source, not from an I thought that says, please stop, or, or demanding that the thoughts are, or in a fight with your thoughts. I'm not uh, advocating that you get into any struggle Meditation is not uh, an act that involves effort. It's the letting go of all effort. It's the letting go of the belief you need to make some effort to control. It's simply the freeing of yourself from the belief that you are the thoughts. And then the thoughts will extinguish themselves. When you don't buy into them, when they can't tempt you or they can't scare you, uh, or they can't make you want to act on them, they get weaker and weaker because you're not feeding them, you're not giving them life. And then as they get weaker, they stop coming and then you're free. And then thoughts will come from a much higher level or you will simply be in a state of, of liberation from thought. And then uh, if a thought is needed, it will come through, but it comes through without the belief that there's a thinker. It just is a flow, as is life entirely. It's just a flow that happens by itself with nobody doing anything. It's what the Taoists call Wu Wei. Okay, I think that's enough for this evening. 
But now let's do the exercise one more time. This time let's do two or three minutes of silence. But instead of trying to stop your thoughts, this time focus on who am I that's perceiving the thoughts. Okay, so if you want to close your eyes, do that. But focus on the innermost seer, the innermost knower of thought and, and perception. Okay, so enter into that with a, an earnest desire to know the self that is beyond thought. If you get distracted by thought, just keep returning to that question silently asked, who am I that's perceiving the thoughts? What is the I beyond thought? Feel the sense of self. Don't think about it. And feel the power that emerges from this changeless center. That is your own power, your power of silence. Oh. 
Shanti. Okay. How many were more successful this time than the first exercise? Yeah? Okay, excellent. So, rather than fighting the thoughts from the level of the ego, transcend the ego and the power of silence will come through. As well as other feeling states that are transcendent of the ego, like divine love, if we want to, to use that word. Love without an object, without a dualistic frame of reference. And light, there'll be a self-luminous sense. And there will be other phenomena of a paranormal sort that will emerge if you stay long enough in that state. But the point is not to want it, not to uh, desire anything other than the desireless state. And so you can't really keep desiring that state. That state of desire itself must be extinguished in the sense of being the self without thinking. And when the thoughts stop, desire stops, and the real emerges, and then it's beautiful in a way that is unimaginable to the ego, and everything changes as a result of that. That's the miracle that meditation will produce in your life simply through wanting to know who you are. Okay, how many felt this was useful tonight? Yeah, oh, okay, that's more than I thought. That's great. <laughs> I want you to use it <clears throat> tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. when you sit. Remember, that's what you're there to do when we sit to meditate. Turn inward and, and ask silently, who, what is this mystery of awareness that is perceiving a body, that is perceiving a world, it thinks, uh, and perceiving thought that tells it all of that. And what is it when it stops believing everything that the, the mind is, is thinking and it discovers what am I for real? And in that discovery, everything will change forever. Okay, so we will see how quickly you can enter because time is not a reality, it's not a factor. You can enter deeply, quickly into these states of consciousness that are uh, produced directly by the real self that, that bring healing and bring uh, empowerment and bring love and bring joy to your life that you may have never gotten from any external sources that you've been uh, trying to get them from. But there they were all along within you. What you've been seeking is always yourself.